Hello and welcome back to Too Much Time on Our Hands, the theatrical cut. I'm Terry and as ever I'm joined by my coughing accomplice, Sonia. <laughs> You're coughing accomplice? Yeah, well you coughed I, as I introduced you. I have got a little tickle in my throat, yeah. Other than that, all alright though? Yeah, yeah, feeling good. So we're here now to talk about the films of <laughs> Guillermo del Toro, um, someone that I enjoy, I pulled him out of the hat. Um, as very, it were. As it were, yes. I'm very excited about this topic. So what we're going to do is... He's only done 10 films, so we're going to talk through the 10 films, skimming over most of them and go in-depth on... I've got two and Sonia's got... Is it two. Two, two that we're going to go in-depth on. Ish. Ish. Um, <laughs> can I just say, when you pulled this... Or when you chose this category for us to talk about... I nearly uh, started watching Benicio del Toro films. Of course you did. Yeah. Um, so it's a good thing you came back at me with, I'm going to watch Pan's Labyrinth. I was just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Put my Sicario DVDs away um, and start again. So, yeah, I'm a little bit more behind than you. But, yeah, carry on. So we're going to start with his directorial debut, which is the film Kronos. Yeah, which is I wanted to watch, but in my massive boxes of DVDs, couldn't get to it in time. No. No. But you have you have seen it or you've not seen it or you just wanted to rewatch it? Um I have not seen it. I own it, but I wanted to have a first time watch and review of it. Is that Oh, I'm looking it upside down. I thought I had nine point seven on IMDB. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I've never no. seen it. What what is six point seven. Isn't there something on here that has got ten? Or is it the Sopranos? Uh, there's an episode of Breaking Bad that has 10. Okay. Anyway, we're going massively off topic here. Uh, yeah, so Kronos. So, obviously, people who are aware of Guillermo del Toro, he is a Mexican filmmaker who has a thing for the fantastical and the fantasy. And this film is... It's basically like a vampire film, but not with vampires in it. It's You've got an old man who exists, and the Kronos of the title is like this little device that turns this old man essentially into a vampire and gives him a thirst for blood and there's a really weird scene in it where like someone bleeds on the floor and he's literally just like trying to stop himself from dropping to the floor and just lapping up this blood it's got a sort of comedic element to it it's not like an out and out horror but it's it's a very interesting film as with most horror films it has ron perlman in it speaking mexican I didn't know he could do that until I saw this film. But yeah, it's it's a, a Guillermo del Toro vampire film, essentially, without... Obviously, he does some other vampire films we get onto, but this is just... It's a bit like George, R. Romero, George Romero's Martin, where it's almost a, not a vampire film, but is a vampire, because it's not like the fanged, hmm. seducing women turning into bats flying around kind of thing. It's just... He just starts off as a human <laughs> guy, and he just descends into this creature-type mm. thing. Um, but yeah, a really good film. Really enjoyed it. Only an hour and 34 minutes looking oh, at it there. So magical. An absolute delight. Uh, a really lovely cover as well. My one's got like a really nice embossed slipcase on it. All right, don't show off. With a nice red red writing. I think mine's just got a shitty plastic case. You, you bought it at the wrong time. So that was in 1993. So there's a bit of a gap between that and his next one, which is Mimic, which was in 1997. So this was off the back of the success of Cronus, which was quite a small film, a low budget that turned a decent profit. Mimic was a Hollywood production and Del Toro himself has said that he hated every second of it. As we mentioned on the previous podcast about Netflix letting 
people do stuff he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted the producers kept cutting his film he turned in a cut the film that actually got released is like a producer's cut where they fucked with it right mm. royally but essentially it's like a creature feature where this bug that they create to kill another bug escapes gets into the sewers and then develops into its own thing and starts killing people um i really like it but i love a creature feature as i've said many times um not one of his better films but not his fault that it's not one of his better films unfortunately have you seen mimics on you i feel like i have it's sort of set in like a museum has it got a green cover yeah yeah i think i've seen it yeah i think it has recently had a director's cut but it's still not his original vision because a lot of it obviously got lost because studios don't keep shit like that around uh, so then we start getting into the really good stuff. So his next film was The Devil's Backbone. Oh, hey, this is where I come in. Step on insult. Um, so I chose The Devil's Backbone to watch, uh, mainly because <clears throat> I've seen it before. So I could have talked about it um, without having to rewatch, but I did rewatch. Um, this is a film set in an orphanage. Uh, which I I like because they're always kind of a little bit creepy. Um, So it's a Spanish-language film. It's about a boy called Carlos whose father dies or goes missing in the Spanish Civil War. I think he dies, and he's kind of dropped off at this orphanage um, where where essentially the orphanage is haunted. Um, And you sort of follow... Carlos and a group of the uh, boys from the orphanage sort of trying to not not put it right, I guess, but... Unravel the mystery. Yeah, unravel the mystery. I mean, there's another boy that's there who's um, a bit of a bully to begin with, but then he comes good and he kind of knows what's happened. So essentially it's another boy is haunting the orphanage. Also, what you've got going on in the background is there is gold at the orphanage and people are trying to steal the gold. So you've got that as well. Um, now, I was initially... Um, I've I've owned this film for years. Um, and the film was released 2001. in 2001. Um, and potentially I've had it since probably not long after that. I didn't buy it because I knew who the director was. I probably wasn't aware of that director at the time I picked it because it looked like the kind of horror movie that I Mm. would like um it's a ghost story I wouldn't really call it an out and out horror though it's obviously if you went into say a high street retailer of dvd um and cd it may be filed under world cinema yeah but I have it with my horror films um and what I like about this film um is the kind of techniques that were used and the way the ghost looks. When I watch the film, it looks to me, and I don't know how they achieve the effect of the ghost, of this little boy called Santi or something like that, um, who drowned. But it almost looks like as if he's been filmed and then the the film of the boy is kind of like almost placed over the film that, of what we're watching. It feels to me like he's been superimposed. It's not Yeah, like, but not superimposed like naff sort of yeah, like not, cut yeah. out. It's almost as if film of him is placed over film of the rest of the mm, action that's inserted, going on. He looks inserted, doesn't he? But in like a good way. But yeah, in like a good way and almost like a kind of like a shimmery way. I guess it's to make it look like he's underwater. And what I didn't realise um, 
until reading up about the film to talk talk about it on here was some of the techniques that Del Toro used. Um, and that also that this this is a film that he wrote when he was at college. It was like a passion mm. project for him. And he wrote it when he was very young. But he... So the, um, the appearance of the ghost, he, you know, he's got a very, like, pale face and that. And he got the idea from sort of the Japanese horror films that we love, like yeah. The Ring where, and The Grudge and that, where they've got the white faces... And he got the idea from that. And even at one point, he asked um, the little boy playing the ghost to film um, film his actions backwards so that he could then play them forward to get more of a creepy look, which is something that they use yeah. in those Japanese horror films. So that's the movement that gives me the shits. Um, not literally the shits. Um, but apparently it was taking too long to film. It was, the, it was taking the little boy too long to do things backwards. So he just yeah. said, I'll just do it forwards. Um, but but I didn't obviously didn't know that at the time when I was watching it. But I'm wondering if, in hindsight, that over the years, if that's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed the film over the years, yeah. is because actually it it takes inspiration from yeah, other films that I enjoy. Um, it's it's not a scary film, I don't think. Um, I think it's got a couple of jumps, isn't it? But yes, like you say, um, it's not scary. Yeah. Scary. Um, but it's quite. Um, it's, it's atmospheric. I, I personally, upon rewatching, do think it looks quite dated. Mm. Um, and but I, I don't... think he went back to sort of lower budget, having had yeah. such a shit experience with Mimic, and he deliberately took that step back. But also, I, I only have it on DVD. And like I say, it's, it's an old DVD copy that I've got. The picture's not great as well. Mm. I wouldn't mind seeing it restored. I don't know if it's available restored. Um, actually... Maybe I did read somewhere that. I imagine with Criterion, I've done it, and I think the spine number is six six six. I think I may have read that. So I imagine a lot else. of his films will probably be getting remixed and re, like, redone and put back out. Yeah. Now I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that it has been done. Oh, yeah. The upcoming Criterion Collection DVD Blu-ray release of the film has the spine number 666, a clever play on words with the film's title. Um, now, the other thing, which I didn't know, obviously, when we were preparing t- for this episode, you told me that you were going to watch and talk about Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. And he considers these two films siblings and yeah. that The Devil's Backbone is the masculine film... And Pan's Labyrinth is the feminine film. Yeah. I don't quite know what that means, but I thought it was quite interesting that you and I chose Del Toro's sibling films to talk about. Yeah. Because we didn't, you just told me I'm going to watch Pan's Labyrinth, but you didn't know what I'd chosen. No. And I didn't know that Del Toro felt that way about the films. I did also read that he considers The Devil's Backbone his favourite of his films, which I thought was quite interesting. Um,. I like The Devil's Backbone. I think it's one that possibly people aren't aware of, maybe because of its age. Yeah, and it being um, world cinema as and well. And the fact that um, you have to watch it with the subtitles. Um, but, you know, that's that's not the worst thing in the world. Yeah. Is it? I really like The Devil's Backbone. I would give it a watch. In fact, I'm going to see if I can get a restored version of it so I can watch it crisper. And if you do that, I shall borrow it. Oh, will you? I will. Uh, so, slightly different tack with his next film. He jumps back on the Hollywood bandwagon machine and he made Blade 2. Oh, it's such a great film. So, yeah, so an absolutely, 
we would have covered it in the vampire pod many moons ago but just an excellent action vampire feast he introduced the vampires with the splitting jaw there's one thing that del toro loves is to create a monster and create creatures for his films and he just obviously had a lovely time making blade 2 um so yeah we won't go into this, too much detail but but just quickly this nearly was one of my other picks if we hadn't talked about it on the vampire pod yeah it's it's so great i i love the way those vampire hybrids look with their yeah. sideways mouths amazing he's got such a um like you say right he loves the fantastic yeah. i Apparently, i don't think anyone quite does creatures like he does no even like we're not talking about them but like films that he's been a producer on you can clearly see that he's had an input on the designs hmm. and the tv series that he's been involved in apparently every time he does a film he has like a sketchbook and he doodles things and writes things down and he'll work like you said with devil's backbone he'd done it for years he'll work on a film for like five or six years before he even starts taking it to studios and you can just tell he has a love like we say of creating these worlds and creating these creatures mm. Uh, so next up was Hellboy. Mm. So this was a comic book adaptation, which he very much put his own spin on. So I love the Hellboy comics. I've got lots of them. I love the Hellboy films. So this is Ron Perlman as Hellboy, who is the bringer of the apocalypse, but has somehow ended up working for the US government, helping them to get rid of other paranormal things. Uh, you've got, again, weird and wonderful creatures this crazy world and clearly Guillermo del Toro having a lot of fun with a mainstream studio bringing this to life. Is he and having a lovely time? He's having a bloody lovely time. Um, Say, so working with Ron Perlman again, I love the Hellboy film. I nearly picked Hellboy. I know you did. Um, it came very close and then I remembered about another film that... It was more I wanted to re-watch the other film and this gave me a reason to and then I could talk about it. Funnily enough, I wanted to re-watch Hellboy but because you picked it, I picked something else. <laughs> you really? Picked, yeah. Um, but never mind. I'll watch Hellboy another day. You wanker. Yeah, I've got a lovely steelbook of it as well. Oh, I might have to borrow that because I think all mine are in boxes. Mm. I mean, the only sad thing about it is obviously there's a Hellboy reboot slash new adaptation film mm. coming out this year so we'll never get to see the completion of del toro's trilogy because that would have been fucking epic but anywho uh so next on we come to 2006 and the first film i'm going to talk about which sonia has alluded to the second part or the the feminine side of his coupling pan's labyrinth so having just had a quick scan through this is the highest rated film he has on imdb at 8.2 really yeah okay i'm surprised by that i think the his issue, air quotes, is he makes a lot of foreign films because obviously he's foreign. And then his other films, his English films, are things like Blade and Hellboy or obviously The Shape of Water. But that's, although it's not foreign language, it's a very weird concept. And I feel like that's maybe why people wouldn't rate it as high as some other peop other films. I'm genuinely shocked that A, Shape of Water isn't rated higher and 8.2 is his highest rating because I would put it higher. Yeah, I 100% would. It's probably in my top 10 films, although someone at work asked me what my favourite film was and I nearly had a fucking meltdown and said, you need to give me at least a month's written notice for me to even contemplate what a film, my best film might be. Whatever, or of his films. 
Um, it would be in my top 10 films ever, Pan's Labyrinth. It's one of those films that I forget how much I love it until I start watching it again. I mean, you talked about Devil's Backbone aging. I don't think this film has aged a day because his way of creating, they don't look crisp, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in 10 years, it's not that he's not using like cutting edge technology. He's using standard technology. So it doesn't age as poorly. So, I mean, if you look at like the Transformers first film now, because it was cutting edge, it looks a bit near. Whereas mm. these, nothing shiny, nothing smooth. It's all like carved out of wood and stuff like that. And it just, just doesn't age as badly. So Pan's Labyrinth is set during the Spanish Civil War and we follow Ophelia who is moving with her pregnant mother to go and live with General Vidal, who is one of the leaders of the Spanish military. He's trying to capture the resistance living in this wood, so they're going to there because she's pregnant with his child and he firmly believes that a son should be born with his father. Um, Ophelia is, I'm guessing, a lot like Guillermo del Toro's when she's in love with the fantastical. She's got lots of fairy tale books. She very much believes in fairy tales. She doesn't have a very nice time at this place. The the her father, as he's she, as his mother wants to call it, clearly doesn't care for her. Doesn't want her there. She's just there because she's part of the package. Um, so she then starts to have this fantastic well. well you could view it as a fantastical dreams or you could view it as she meets there is a labyrinth by this ho- by this hotel by the house that she is living in and she stumbles upon here and in the bowels of this labyrinth she finds pan or the fawn apparently pan is a god and digamotor mm. doesn't consider that his fawn is pan it's just when they translated the title they called it pan's labyrinth it's just the labyrinth of the fawn in spanish um and he tells ophelia that she's actually this princess reborn from this underground realm (coughs) and she came up to see the to see the earth as it is lived passed away and it was foretold that she would return in human form and then could come back to the realm in order to come back she must complete three tasks and she sets about doing these tasks set on by pan so the fawn is again a mixture of CGI and practical effects. So Doug Jones, who is a regular within Guillermo del Toro films as the person in the bodysuit, essentially Mm. it's reading up on it. So he has an entirely animatronic head on his head so that the ears can move, the eyes can move, the mouth can move. He couldn't speak Spanish and they dubbed him because he couldn't speak Spanish, but he still learned all of his lines in Spanish and all of her lines in Spanish because of all the motors. He couldn't hear her talk. So he had to basically read in his head his lines and her lines so that he turned his head and moved at the right time Mm. to be able to work with it. And you can clearly tell that it's real because Ophelia's reactions to it are clearly reactions to it, not reactions to a tennis ball on a bloody stick. And it just adds so much to the film. So you've basically got two films happening at the same time. You've got this Spanish Civil War film with the Resistance where the maid in the house is helping the Resistance and I think her partner is in the Resistance. And then you have all these fantastical elements. So one of the tasks is she has to get a key out of a frog that's living at the bottom of a fig tree and has killed the fig tree. So she's climbing in amongst the mud and it's really horrible, dirty, sticky. 
And then the famous one is obviously the Pale Man. She has to go and collect... Is it a key? Or she has to go and collect something from this realm and she has to use chalk to open a doorway and she's told, do not eat anything off the table and you'll be fine. She eats a grape off the table and the Pale Man, who is this tall, again played by Doug Jones, tall, thin thin-legged he doesn't look like he should be able to stand up all his skin sagging he doesn't have any eyes his eyes are in the palm of his hand and he puts them up to his face and he's like screaming and chases her um and then i don't want to go too much further into the film because we get into spoiler territory but one other thing i do want to talk about is so vidal general vidal her new father is what can only be described as an utter utter bastard they go out of their way to show what a horrible horrible man he treats everyone even like his own soldiers like absolute shit he is above everyone and he hates everyone and there is a particular scene where they really set out how bastardy he is two people are caught poaching on his land and he's going through the bag and you've got an old man and the son and the son's like saying oh it's just my father please leave him alone like He's, he's getting old, he's seen old, like, don't punish him. So instead, Vidal takes a empty bottle and smashes the guy's face in with it. But the camera stays on his face and you watch his nose slowly bend oh. further and further backwards into his face until his face just basically isn't there anymore. But the camera just holds on it. It's so jarring and so horrendous, but just sets the character up so well. And reading the trivia, it's a really strange thing. So Vidal, obviously you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, utter bastard. Up until that point, he was known as a comedy actor. Wow. And everyone who knew him said to Del Toro, what the fuck are you casting him for? He'll be awful because he's just seen as almost like a Mr. Bean type figure mm. in that country. And fuck me, you would not want to mess with him. He is an absolute, I mean, I've said bastard about five times describing him, but that's not enough. Um, but yeah the thing I love about them is just say again the fantastical nature the first time I watched it there were so many bits where I had to pause and rewind because it looked so beautiful I stopped reading the subtitles because I was just watching it and looking at it so I had to watch it and enjoy the view rewind and then play it back and watch it again actually taking in what's happening but sometimes though I think you you don't have to read the subtitles sometimes with certain things the action is enough yeah definitely I, th- I feel like this is probably a film that you could get the gist of but i just had to go back and read it so i could fully understand but what i really love about this film is like i say there's like these two narratives of the fantastical and the real and it's very much left up to you to decide is the fantastical side actually happening or is it just in ophelia's head and her escapism mm. there's there's things that happen that you can attribute to the fantastical or you can attribute to well it's because of this and i really like when something is apparently galama the torah is very clear that it's not real it's in her head and it's all about the balance of things i can't really say much more about that without spoiling it but for me it really is left open-ended and depends on how i'm feeling as to how i want to feel that mm. the film actually goes but i absolutely love it as a film i think it's I would say it's my favourite Guillermo del Toro film over Shape of Water. I think that's amazing, but I, this is a film that I watch. I would say it's definitely in my top 10, possibly top five, depending on what day you ask me. Wow. But I just absolutely love it as a film. I've um, I've only seen it once. 
And um, I got the chance to see it at the cinema, which was nice. I saw it at the Rex in Burko. Um, I do remember loving it. I own it as well. Um, yeah. It's one of the first Blu-rays I ever bought. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I do need to re-watch it. Um, and again, I... <laughs> There are, there are, there's probably more Del Toro films I, that I like, like on a, than I thought I liked. And initially, yeah. when you said we were going to talk about this, and you said I'm picking Pan's Labyrinth and Hellboy, my initial reaction was always oh, fucking pick the best two. <laughs> um, but like, but there, there are obviously a lot, there are a lot yeah. more than two good films on the list. But they were initially my oh god, he's picked the best two. Um, because I think the same about Pan's Labyrinth is that yeah. um, it's amazing, but I really love Blade 2 as well. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. Uh, so next up, uh, his first sequel, we have Hellboy 2. So I actually picked Hellboy 2, not Hellboy originally, and then switched out for another one. But Because for me, Hellboy 2, as with most films where you've got a first and a sequel, the sequel has more time to just be a film rather than setting up the world. And yeah. the world of Hellboy is a very weird world. So it does take a lot of setting up. So the second one is just Hellboy in his pomp, a lot more spectacle, some great elemental beasts. You've got Luke Goss in it back from his blade team up with blade two as a prince who is an absolute kick-ass martial artist. Um, but yeah, I just really, really like Hellboy two. I say, I love the Hellboy films really gutted. We don't get to see Hellboy three with Ron Perlman and Guillermo mm. del Toro because he wrote it as a trilogy. He had a trilogy in mind, but apparently the third film he had in mind was probably an $80 million budget and no one was prepared to give it to him. Mm. Uh, so we shall never see that, unfortunately. Anything you'd like to add on? No. Hellboy 2. Uh, so a bit of a gap from 2008. So the next one was Pacific Rim in 2013. So Pacific Rim right up my alley. Giant robots, giant monsters. Um, and again, I think Guillermo del Toro just spent that little bit more time developing like the backstory for it all. <coughs> I mean, they created around about 30 robots and around about 50 of the monsters, but we don't see half of them because he just loves to create those monsters. If you like that sort of thing, you'll love Pacific Rim. Uh, next up is my second film. So Crimson Peak from 2015. Oh, what a visual extravaganza. Yeah, so... It's it's getting a fancy Arrow re-release Is in it? a really fancy box with Is loads it? of extras. Yeah, I say. Yeah, so that that's probably going to be an absolute feast. Um, I imagine it'll be one of the few things that both of us buy. Quite possibly. Yeah. Uh, so Crimson Peak, I want. I decided on instead of Hellboy Two, it's another one that I wanted to rewatch, and it was an excuse to rewatch it as part of it and. I remembered really enjoying it, but not being disappointed, but I felt like it was marketed really badly. It was marketed Absolutely. as like a horror film. It was a this really sort of gothic ghost story, which is gothic and there is a ghost story in it. But as it goes to, it literally says in the film, because in the film you've got Edith Cushing, a homage to Peter Cushing with the name, um, she writes stories and someone says, oh, it's a ghost story. She says, no, no, it's just a story with ghosts in it. And that is very much what Crimson Peak is. It is a film that has ghosts in it. But they're actually, forewarning her, they're actually almost on her side. It's not a haunting film. Mm. Um, so it is about Edith Cushing, played by Mia Wachowska, who 
is very much she's writing books she's very much pushing against the norms of a young lady in the 19th century and then uh, Sir Thomas Sharp, played by Tom Hiddleston in a fabulous suit, looking ravishing. Right. Yeah. Um, turns up and he's looking for investment. So he he's from England, playing English. Um, he's got land where there's this really famous clay, but they're not able to mine it anymore because they basically emptied the mine. So he's developed this device that will be able to mean that they can still mine, but he needs investment from it because basically his family have gone bankrupt because of the overmining of these mines. Um, Edith's father basically destroys him in a, a dragon's den style mm. fashion where he's coming for it. They basically embark upon like a little falling in love story. I mean, it's over very quickly and eventually they marry and she moves in with him and his sister Lucille played to absolute perfection by Jessica Chastain there's clearly something not right about her, but we don't know if it's sinister, if it's just how's our dynamic going to change now that you're married and you're bringing mm. someone back to our house. They, we find out they've been together on their own in this house for a long time. Their mother died when they were quite young. So it's, is it a case that once we get to the house, it's absolutely in ruin. It snows in the middle of the house because there is a hole in the roof. Because of the mines underneath, there's like a draft that sweeps through the mm. house. And it very quickly, we realise that there is a very dark secret within this house and within the Sharps. And that there's a very sinister plan they have in store for Edith. But not going to say too much more about the story because that will get into it and cause spoilers. But it's just the look of the film. Again, Del Toro just creates a world and creates an aesthetic I mean, the house is entirely a set. It is not a real house, but it looks like a real house. Mm. This clay that is special is red, and that's why it's called Crimson Peak, and it bleeds into the house. It bleeds mm. into everything. Towards the climax of the film, it snows, and so all the snow turns red because of the clay in the earth. And reading about it, I hadn't noticed, but the colour red is not seen in the film until you get to the house. He deliberately left it out of all the scenes anywhere else. And it's only when you get to the house and it's a very vibrant red. It is mm. very bright. I mean, you, you talked before about Suspiria and how red hadn't been invented until Dario Argento created for Suspiria. And that I feel there's clearly a homage there from Del Toro in this film. But it's just, it's very well acted from Hiddleston, Wachowska and Chastain. They're playing it very, it could easily be in the hands of a different director and different actors a very hammy over the top shitty horror film yeah but it's very much not that it is a character piece with some ghosts in the background and with this say this sinister secret that that comes to the fore as the film rolls on and i just i remembered enjoying it but re-watching it, it was just like this is such a good film and it is possibly one of his most underrated films because I say it was marketed as this ghost story and as this scary film. I feel like it's film. one of the more commercial ones, maybe yeah. because of the way it was marketed. I, that's it. I think they sort of, the way they marketed it, took it away from what you would expect from a Guillermo del Toro film. So perhaps Guillermo del Toro fans didn't go and see it mm. because it didn't look like their cup of team. And the people that went to see it weren't expecting a Guillermo del Toro film. So it jarred with them a bit. But it's a film I think will gain more, I say, Arrow don't throw out massive special editions for films that aren't good. Yeah. So the fact I say I think it's like a four disc. Uh, it's got like a 
a bit like the Candyman one, like a fancy hard case mm. around it. Um, but yeah, I would heartily recommend Crimson Peak. It is just such, such a, I, I use the word lovely again, but just a feast for the eyes, yeah. as you like to say. And it's just a really, really well told film. The thing that always springs to mind when I think of Crimson Peak is the red that's in it. Yeah. Because it is such a... It is red. Yeah. it's There's something special about it. Um, but the the other thing I was going to ask you about the brother and sister, and you said there's obviously something going on. Yeah. Get an incest vibe off of them? Uh, it's hard to answer that without being spoilery. Okay. We could talk about that off mic. Okay. <laughs> All right then. Uh, so... There's only one film left that he has directed and this was the film that finally garnered him an Oscar and many Oscars because he won it won screenplay as well, I think. Uh, and it is The Shape of Water, which I believe you're going to talk about, Sonia. Yeah, so last year's uh, winner of Best... Was it Best Picture and Best Director? Yes. Um, plus some others. Um, the Shape of Water, which Terry and I went to see... Um, almost a year ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think that might have been an unlimited screening as well, you know. Because it came, it came up on my Facebook memories that I'd watched, um, I think it was on Thursday, Thursday or, yeah, yesterday or the day before that I'd watched The Shape of Water <coughs> a year ago and then two years ago I'd watched Moonlight and I said, oh, I've watched two Oscar-winning movies. The same so, day. In in theory, the one that I watched... Um, yesterday should be the Oscar winning movie and I watched Roma yesterday so well, there you go if we're going to follow that trend Roma should be winning best picture um, and ironically when we went to see Shape of Water when we came out it was raining and, I don't um, remember that but... I remember because uh, that's the picture I took when we left the cinema and I said funnily enough it's raining and we've just watched Shape of Water so um, for anyone that's been living in a cave and has maybe not seen Shape of Water or heard of Shape of Water um, it's about um, a young lady who works in a research facility. She, she's like a cleaner there, I think. Yeah. Um, she's not a researcher or anything. But um, within this research facility, there is a creature that has been captured and that they want to study, which is part man, part fish. Yeah, um, sort of like the creature from the Black Lagoon. A merman? I don't know what you'd call him, but he's a fish. Um, <laughs> and long story short, um, they they fall in love. It's, it's a love a story. Fairly key element out of there. She's deaf and mute. I hadn't finished. Okay. That wasn't my entire summary of the film. Um, she, yeah, she's deaf and mute, so she doesn't. Well, I, is she deaf or does she sign because she's mute? I was under the impression she was just mute. She might just be mute then. Yeah, um, no, she's mute, yes. Yeah. So she's mute for whatever reason. Um, I don't think we find it out. I think we do. It's, I've only seen it once at the cinema, but I think... Um, or it's at least alluded to. Okay, so she's mute. Um, so she signs. Um, she's got a good friend there. Um, that she works with. But otherwise, she lives on her own. She's got a good friend, um, her neighbour. Um, and she signs to these two people. But you kind of get the um, impression that she's she's alone. And yeah. she's lonely. Um, and so when she 
is working one day and she discovers this creature and she befriends him, you kind of feel like they need each other. Yeah. Because he's in this tank. He's in a place he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what's going on. He's obviously in captivity and he doesn't want to be. And I guess they kind of need each other. Um, And then the story develops from there. Now, this was a film that when it was... um, It was being talked about when we started seeing trailers for it. 100%, I was just like, oh my God, this is my cup of tea. I want to see it. It looks amazing. Like, just just the look of it. Yeah. Um, And when I went to see it, I wasn't disappointed with the way that it looked. Like, the setting. So, the year that it's set... Oh, it's set in the 60s. So, you got that sort of style of the 60s, um, the facility where they're working and the place where she's, she's got this apartment. Um, it's like a room, really. Yeah. Um, where she's living, sort of the way that's all decorated. There's lots of nice tiles. There's lots of nice blues and greens colours. So, like we were saying, when we think of Crimson Peak, obviously it's in the title, but we think of the colour red when we think mm. of Crimson Peak. When I think of Shape of Water, I think of lots of greens and blues. Yeah. Obviously, the colour of water. Um and it looked incredible. Yeah. It really, really did. It had this beautiful atmospheric music. I love the fact there was a lead character that didn't fucking speak. Mm-hmm. Um, give me that all day long. I thought it was an absolute, like, perfect, beautiful, romantic love story until they had sex. <laughs> Fuck that shit. That would have been a perfect film for me. Um and it is a near perfect film for me. And it just, there's just that one little element that just robbed it. It was, it was such a fairy tale for me. And I don't know what it's meant to be. Um, but it, that, just that one little thing, well, actually, two little things ruined it for me. But that thing just ruined it for me. I wanted them to, to fall in love and be companions forever. And they can do that shit. That's fine. I don't want to know about it. Because as soon as I knew they did that, it became, it went from being a beautiful story of companionship and friendship and like a deep love to bestiality. Um, and that's just where it lost its like almost, like it's perfect <laughs> rating for me. How and many I'm things being, have been ruined by bestiality? I'm being though? serious here. I really, really feel... For me, personally, that film was spoiled by them having sex and her talking about it in... Or talking about it, signing about it in just a crass way. And I just thought, thought, oh, this... It it really cheapened him for me. It's still like a four, four and a half out of five for me if we're going to use the sort of letterbox rating uh, system that we use. Um, and it possibly seems like a petty thing to a lot of people, but it it went from fantasy to then just adding an element that was a bit just like... Oh, so for me, I agree. So I've only seen it once. I feel like a second time around, that won't be as jarring. I for don't know me, that anyway. I've, I don't know that I found it jarring as such because I... Because the way it develops... Um, you kind of feel like it's going to build up to that. I think it was the fact that it's such a small little thing, but it, it, it made such a big difference to how I viewed the film. It was 
the talking about it afterwards, not talking because she's mute, but discussing it with her friend afterwards. Mm. And it just, I don't know, there was just something about that part of the story that just didn't sit right with me. Um, and just, it did honestly just spoil it a little bit for me. Having said that, The Shape of Water is still better than, you know, probably 90% of the films that I've watched yeah. and have seen. And I still like 98% of the film. If I could just remove those few scenes where she talks about and describes his fucking penis. Um, oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that bit. Then it would be a perfect film for me. But I just have to remove that a little bit. However, I would say everyone should watch The Shape of Water. I don't... It's not a film that I own and I'm not going to buy it for my collection because um, it's not something that I've... I've if it was on TV, I'd watch it again. Yeah, I don't think it's like a massive watcher. I thought you're going to watch it a couple of times a year or anything like that. It's going to be no. a once in a while. Um, I'd be more more inclined to go and see it at the cinema again because mm. it is definitely a film that um, uh, warrants being seen on the big screen. Yeah. It's definitely one of those kind of films. Um but lots of people, I know so many people that have sort of said to me, oh, Sonia, have you seen that? Like, they're asking me, have I seen it? Because they want my opinion on it. Have you seen that fish film? Like, so last year when it mm. was obviously massive because of the Oscar buzz and people said, have you, have you seen that fish film that won the Oscars? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And people sort of go on about how great it is. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, the fish fucking film. Mm. And they're just like, what do you mean? And I was just like, she fucks a fish. <laughs> and they're just like, no, she doesn't. And I'm like, no, she does. And then you can see it going over in the head and they're like, oh, she does, doesn't she? And I'm like, yeah. Mm. How do you feel about it now? And they're just kind of like, oh, yeah. And it's almost as if people watch it and just like erase that from their mind. But I just feel like if it was a different film, he wasn't a fish man. He was maybe, I don't know, a monkey man or a horse man. Would that be okay? I don't know. That that side of it just doesn't sit right with me. Otherwise, Shape of Water, beautiful film. Mm. Give it a watch. Just, just I mean, I just add you haven't mentioned him at all there, but Michael Shannon's uh-huh. character Look, as well. I've, I was got like, him, I've got him on my phone screen right here. Um, yeah, I was going to mention like Michael crazy, Shannon like, and Octavia policeman. Spencer. Is it, he's just the most not quite as extreme. Like when we talked about Guy Pierce a few weeks ago now, mm. um, and we talked about him in the film. Outlaw? Yeah. Uh, where he plays an absolute arsehole. Lawless, sorry. Lawless. Uh, where he plays an absolute arsehole. Not quite as extreme, but almost as extreme as his character, mm. as Guy Pierce's character in that, with him being such an absolute arsehole. Because yeah. all he's interested in, he's hell-bent on getting this creature and keeping this creature. Yeah, and his finger. And Sally Hawkins, who we haven't mentioned yet, she plays the lead in this, all she's interested in is setting the creature free. Yeah. Um, so obviously they bang heads a little bit. But yeah, he plays a brilliant arsehole. Yeah. And Octavia Spencer plays a perfectly nice friend. Yeah, she she's perfect as the, the supportive friend, obviously, the, the help. The she's, comic relief. Yeah, she's very good in that role. I would also say with the, like, you saying about like the colours and stuff, I know this is a film that Glenn Wendell was working on for about 10 years, and he actually started having the sets made before the film was greenlit, paid with out of his own money because he knew... Literally greenlit. Because he knew that it was going to take ages and he wanted them to look spot on. So mm. he he actually paid out in his own money and had people making like 
the set with like the tanks and stuff like because he wanted it to be made and then it could start to actually age and look yeah. run down and shitty yeah, yeah. like it does in the film. But you know, I think it's I wasn't so pro- first watch and like when it first happened, there was a little bit of a she's fucking a fish, but I feel like the film does its way to make that not quite as bad if you watch that once you've watched it to the end. There's obviously a, an amazing like dream sequence in the middle as well where they start dancing. It turns into like a song and dance number, which I mm. think is absolutely fantastic. Um, I know it did start to get not necessarily bad press, but because it was winning so many things, they became the anti-shape of water people because everyone starts to get on the back of something when it starts doing really yeah. well and everyone loves it. They can't love it because everyone else does. But yeah, I think I think it's a lovely film. I don't own it. I've only seen it the once. I really do want to see it again. Um, I, I don't know why I haven't ended up buying it. I think it's just one of those things where I just haven't. But I really look forward to seeing it again. And yeah, I think it's a great film. I'm just um, bringing up, out of interest, the um, nominees for... Best picture from last year, what it was up against. Uh, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk. Um, oh, that's the only three I can get up. I mean, I, I would have given Dunkirk the Oscar over Shape oh, of yeah. Water. Um, I, I wasn't anti-Shape of Water. I just want to say, obviously, I picked Shape of Water to talk about because there were other films that I felt like we talked about recently enough. And with the exception of us saying we've been to the cinema to watch Shape of Water, I don't think we've really discussed it. Mm. Um, I felt like it was one of those things where, again, like we've said previously, um, it was Gary Oldman's time to win. Yeah. Do I think he was the best actor last year? No. I think it was Del Toro's time to win. Yeah. And so many people were like campaigning for him to win. I honestly feel like he could have put out any film and it would have won the Oscar I I don't think that's necessary I think it was he'd made a film that was a bit more I'm trying to think of the right words but able to win an Oscar if that makes sense like yeah because most of his American output isn't of that level so you think of like your Hellboys your Mimics your Crimson Peaks all of his like top work is his foreign language stuff and that's never going to win best picture because it's in a foreign language so i feel like he put a lot of time into making this that film that sort of hybrid of american but with the sort of sensibilities that he puts into his foreign language films so i I don't think necessarily he could have done hellboy 3 and that would have won the best picture okay maybe not any film but i don't know it was just we'll see yeah We'll see what wins this year. Yeah, we will see. Not but Gary yeah, I, in a fat suit, that's for sure. Certainly not, no. So that is every film he has directed up to now. He does have eight projects on the go because he is Mr. Busy. And he obviously can't mention Del Toro without mentioning that he was originally supposed to direct the Hobbit trilogy as well mm. and spent four years working on it, scouting locations, writing scripts, because he is actually credited as a scriptwriter on the Hobbit films and then eventually dropped out because he just didn't think he was going to get to do what he wanted exactly mm. because I'm imagining Peter Jackson had a very clear vision because he then stepped in and did it anyway. Um, but yeah, Guillermo del Toro. What a lovely, lovely career he's had. Have you had a lovely time? I, I've had a lovely time. Um, cool. So for next... Um 
in three weeks' time, yeah, from when you hear this, um, we'll be talking about another subject. And what I've done is I've I've selected three actors from the hat um, for Terry and I to talk about next time. But Terry doesn't know what the three actors are, and Terry's going to pick a number: one, two, or three. Oh, can I go top, middle, or bottom? You can go top, middle, or bottom. What? I'm going to go bottom. The actor that we'll be talking about in three weeks' time is... What did you say? Bottom. Bottom. Tom Cruise. Ooh. Tom Cruise. So the way we're going to do it, we're actually going to pick three movies to talk about. We're going to go sort of like a snog, marry, avoid yeah. scenario, aren't we? What are we going to do? One that we love, one that we like, one to avoid. Yeah. I think it was one that we love, one that people might not have seen. Under the radar. Under the radar and one to avoid. Interesting. <sighs> Something a, to think about. a tough pick. He's got a few films, hasn't he? One or two. Um, right. Should we leave it at that then? Yeah. That's us. So social media wise, we are on Facebook, Theatrical Cut Pod. We are also Theatrical Cut Pod on the Instagram. Sonia and I are on Instagram. We are I am Prefax. Sonia is Mallory underscore watches. Uh, if you want to email us in anything, if you want to let us know about Tom Cruise films you like, dislike, or we should avoid, it's theatricalcut at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook and please leave a lovely review on iTunes or SoundCloud if that's where you get your pods. Lovely. Thank you so much for listening. We've had a lovely time. Yeah, I'm going to get T-shirts made. A lovely time. A lovely, lovely time. Terry, we all done? All done. Mike, drop. <laughs>